Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Word Processing, the podcast of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. And I am Andrew, joined today with Josiah, and we are wrapping up a sermon series today. Josiah? We are. We have finished six weeks on biblical covenants and... The final one was this past Sunday, the one we probably, I would hope, know the most, the one we refer to the most for sure, the New Covenant. Josiah, let's start off today, just remind us, what actually is this covenant and where is it found? Because I feel like, talking to most people, we'd probably think of New Testament when we think of New Covenant, and yet that's not where we went on Sunday, to start at least. Yeah, yeah, we ended, I guess, in the New Testament, but it first is explicitly referred to in Jeremiah 31, and probably most famously then in Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 36, it comes up quite a bit actually after that. But so we started in Jeremiah 31 and kind of went through a few texts in the Old Testament, making our way to the ratification of the covenant in Christ's blood at the Lord's Supper, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and then with Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 11. And what specifically, again, is found in this covenant? Yeah, it's a promise of sin being forgiven. I will remove their iniquity from them. I will remember them no remember their iniquity no more. There's a promise of a new heart, a purification. There is really is a cleansing, a promise of cleansing, finally. Mm -hmm. That is, and it's in Jeremiah anyways, there is coming a new covenant. So it's not even Jeremiah is the new covenant happening right then, like in Noah's covenant and Mosaic covenant. It's promising this coming new covenant, which when the Lord institutes the supper, that's when it's ratified at the cross. So it's something they're preparing for and waiting for, not so dissimilar from how they wait for Messiah. That's right. Yeah. And the, except that the covenants are kind of ratified along the way, like the priestly covenant, it's voiced and done in that moment. Now they're waiting for its f- fulfillment, but it is ratified in that moment. The same with the Davidic covenant, etc. Sure. But the new covenant, it's promised to one day come. And so you see in Jeremiah 31, this anticipation being stoked. Not only do they realize they need this covenant, but then it's being promised, so they wait for it. And then you get to Hosea and Amos and Malachi, and it's just building this anticipation for this much-needed covenant to deal with purification and sin and a new heart and the ability to obey, for mm. example. And that's all rolled up in this new covenant. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking back to how we talked about the Noahic covenant and how we have a chapter where God talks about promising things, but then it's the next chapter he actually then covenants. Mm-hmm. And so this is maybe kind of a similar thing, but just spread out over a lot longer period of time. Yeah, I can see that with the Abrahamic as well. Sure. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, he says, here's what's happening. I'm promising you these things. And then in 15 kind of ratifies the covenant by splitting the animals and walking through the center. Um, yeah, so you might be right. Well, you talked about this on Sunday and you're starting to allude to it, I think, uh, already today. But what makes this covenant unique from the other five that we've studied? The other ones set up God's redemptive plan, but why was this one still necessary? Because finally sin is dealt with. Hmm. Forgiveness is offered. None of the other covenants dealt with that. They dealt with other issues related to the fall. They dealt with creation not being punished under a flood again. Okay, that won't happen again. Wonderful. But it's still cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you, Genesis 3, right? So the curse is still there. And we see that right after the covenant with Noah, there's fallen nature everywhere still, right? So it still has to be done. And we know from Romans that creation even now groans in anticipation for redemption. 
So that has to be dealt with because sin is still rampant. Same with the Abrahamic covenant, this population, but they are so fickle. It seems like they need sin to be dealt with. Priestly covenant. Well, the priests are fallen still. The Vedic covenant. This king is going to reign in righteousness over what? Like there's still sin. And I mentioned on Sunday, there's this cycle that Israel goes through where they just cannot stay on the right track, no matter how faithful God is. No matter how much he gives them and shows them and cares for them, they still rebel over and over again. It's almost like it's inevitable because of who they are, because of how broken and rebellious they are uh, in their very essence. Something has to change foundationally. Could it be a spiritual heart transplant, a spiritual cleansing, a spiritual free sins forgiven finally? And so that's that's what it brings to the table. It's it's this dealing with sin that has to be dealt with it. All the other covenants they kind of prepared for, like I used on Sunday, this idea of a campfire where they're they're stacking the wood, right. but they still need the match to make them even useful. And I think the one that we probably would think of most associated with sin would be the Mosaic covenant. Yeah. But even that is not actually dealing with the problem of sin. It's maybe at times giving them a way to not even atone. That's not even the right word here, but to you know, make sacrifice on behalf of their sin, to acknowledge their sin, to be made aware of their sin, but it's not dealing with the actual problem. Yeah, we mentioned when we looked at that covenant specifically a number of weeks ago that it was preparatory. Mm -hmm. Like because of its bilateral nature, it was temporary. It was meant to expire. We just could not keep it. In fact, the New Testament calls it the schoolmaster, the tutor that shows us how we could not keep the standard. And even Paul says, I wouldn't even have known what it meant to covet unless the law said, do not covet. So the law comes along and exposes our need for another better unilateral covenant. So yeah, you're right. Even though, I mean, if there was an Israelite who could keep the law perfectly, they would be holy. Sure. And God would be their God and they would be his people, but they just can't do it until the Lord Jesus comes along and he lives it perfectly, lives under the law, uh, does not break the law. But you're right. It really exposes our need for something better. It anticipates this new covenant. Mm-hmm. Well, on that same track, then you said on Sunday that the new covenant pointed to Jesus, but also that the new covenant is Jesus. And I thought that was a really unique way of kind of starting to explain it. So can you maybe just flesh that out a little bit more and specifically why that's important? What does that mean Mm -hmm. to us that Jesus is being pointed to by the covenant, but also himself is the covenant? Yeah. I mean, this is a topic that I'm still really exploring myself and I think to fully explore it, we'd need a lot longer than the 20 minutes we have here. Sure. But it's very clear in Isaiah that he is the new covenant, even just and it's several times. I read a different one on Sunday, but Isaiah 49 verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I have answered you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. He's speaking to the servant again, this, this suffering servant that is to come. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant to the people. And Jesus comes on as the messenger of the covenant. And you think about it in terms of the Mosaic covenant. You go to the book of Hebrews and these bulls and goats were given. And and Hebrews talks about how a covenant is only ratified in death. Something has to die. These animals have to die. You think of Exodus 24 where Moses splatters blood on the people to ratify the covenant. Well, something had to die to give that blood. Yeah. And one of the things that was lacking in the Mosaic covenant was its staying power because it was bilateral. One of the things that was wonderful about the uh, the Abrahamic covenant was that it was God himself. Well, what is more unilateral than God himself being the covenant? Mm-hmm. So not only does there a life have to be given, but Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the son comes and he gives his life, spilling his blood, the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He is the new covenant. He's the mediator of the new covenant. It was his blood that ratified the covenant. And so I think 
Why is it important? I think because then it is ultimately trustworthy. Again, when we, if the covenants have shown us nothing else, it's that when we are involved, they are not trustworthy. Yeah. Because we will break it. <laughs> the only reason the other covenants hold any water is because we're not involved. That God swore by himself. And with the new covenant, I mean, when it talks about salvation and forgiveness and purification and reconciliation and re- relationship with God, I mean, I want that thing to be unilateral to the nth degree. And here God comes along and says, I'm giving myself as the new covenant. So I think it speaks to its trustworthiness, its unilateral nature. It could not be more unilateral. Which I think obviously is super important when it comes to what this covenant actually promises. Mm -hmm. You know, if we can't trust that the problem of sin is dealt with, then we what are we trusting in? What are we trusting for? What are we doing here? If we can't actually believe the words of that covenant demonstrated best in Christ himself. And I love what you mentioned too on Sunday, the fact that this also helps us understand how this covenant applies to us in you know, Paul's terminology yes. of calling us in Christ. Well, that points, if the covenant itself is Christ and we are in Christ and therefore we are in the covenant we've yeah. been grafted in, that's obviously a very important part of this as well. Super important. And we want to apply the new covenant to us as Christians, non-Israelite believers in a way that is appropriate. Yeah. We don't want to just jump into a covenant that wasn't made with us. And if we're honest, when we come to Jeremiah 31, he's not talking to the church in Oakville. He's not talking to New Testament Gentile believers. He's talking to the house of Israel. He makes that explicitly clear when he says, and he says, I'm talking to Judah and Israel. He's actually talking to both both, both yeah. uh, parts of the divided kingdom. So he's clearly talking to them. I don't want to just jump in like a cannonball and say, now it belongs to me. There has to be a biblically appropriate way in which it applies to me. And when we understand that Jesus is not only the culmination of all the covenants, he's the, the, the match that gives them all power. The, the scriptures are Christological. They're all about Christ, but in an appropriate way. Because all the covenants, they go through him. And because, like I said, Paul, it's no accident that Paul says we're in Christ. Well, if we're in Christ and he's the new covenant, praise the Lord, we're in the new covenant. We've been grafted in, as Romans 11 says, into, and I take this olive tree, the the, the roots of the olive tree, to be the covenants. Mm-hmm. They are the covenants. And there is the, the regular branches, Israel who are products of the covenant, and we've been grafted in because some of Israel has been unfaithful. Now, they will be grafted in again, but uh, back in these natural branches. But I just think it's a beautiful picture of how we can biblically be beneficiaries of a new covenant, even though it was not made to us. I think that's really well demonstrated as well in the fact that Christ instituted you know, this supper with his followers, his disciples, who were Jews, and then in First Corinthians, mm-hmm. you have Paul now Excellent. talking to a church of Gentiles and taking that same quoting Christ himself saying, I've received from the Lord and I now pass it on yes. to you this, to make it explicitly clear. This was not just yeah. for that room full of 12. Mm-hmm. It is for yes. the church and the church age as well. Great observation. I think that would be enough for us. How do we, why do we get to celebrate the new covenant? Well, Paul said so inspired by the spirit for sure. sure. But I think what we talked about on Sunday is the theological underpinnings for why he could do that. Hmm. Because Paul understood what we were talking about on Sunday, right? I get you. Um, But it would have been enough, you're right, for him to just take it and say, now I'm giving it to you. The Lord gave it to me. I'm giving it to you. I'm passing it on to the Gentiles as well. But I think it's helpful sometimes to understand there's so much going on here. And it provides, for me at least, more excitement and confidence in the word of God when I see that this is all part of a God-inspired plan to restore what was lost. It's kind of like when you get to see those 
behind the scene videos of how a movie was made. Mm. You know, you appreciate when you watch it because it's incredible, but then you get to see the behind the scenes and sometimes you can add that extra level of like, wow, look at how much work went into making just this one scene. Oh man, it looks like they were right next to each other, but they were actually across the room from each other the way it was filmed. And I think that's the same kind of thing here. We can take it from Paul inspired by the spirit and say, this is incredible. This applies to us. Mm -hmm. But when we understand that God's been preparing it this way from the start, that just gives that extra level of wow and awe and wonder. For sure. And when you remember that even way back in Genesis chapter 12, he left the door open for this. I mean, that sounds so crass, but he left the door open for this in the third branch of the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, all, all nations. the nations of the world will be blessed. Like, how's that going to work? Well, way fast forward, you know, centuries later, we see how it's going to work because this person, this suffering Messiah, who is himself a covenant, is going to come. And we didn't read these passages, but there's lots of passages in the Old Testament where it talks about salvation going to the nations. Well, that's the third branch of the Abrahamic covenant that we see come to fruition in Christ and ultimately through his death and mm. through the bloodshed. Well, Josiah, one of the things I really liked on Sunday, the concept you mentioned is that a right understanding of the new covenant acts as the right fuel for our evangelism. I was thinking maybe we could take a couple minutes and just explore practically how this sell, how this works itself out in the day-to-day. You know, we know we have people that we maybe want to evangelize to, we want to share the gospel with, how does our understanding of the covenant, this covenant specifically, but really all of them, really play into that work that we are trying to do? Mm -hmm. To me, it really comes down to just the obvious reality that we won't stop talking about things that we consider really good news. Like you can't shut people up when they are, something exciting happens in their life. Even if you don't want to hear it, it comes out, you know, like <laughs> someone just gets engaged they, or they have their first kid or their first grandkid. Everyone's seeing pictures. It's, it's all over the place. You're talking because it's good news genuinely mm-hmm. and you're excited about it. Am I excited about the salvation I have in Christ? Am I excited about everlasting life? Am I excited about the freedom I have in Christ? And this is rebuking to me. It's convicting to me. Like I should be sharing that if I'm truly excited about it. Now, there's true that in my flesh, I become, it becomes normal and it becomes, but if I'm looking at it all the time and I'm, I'm drilling down deeper and deeper into this inexhaustible well of the beauty of Christ and the covenant that he is and the future I have because of him, I mean, I won't stop talking about it. No, I, I, I will share it because it is genuinely good news that has changed my life. And so I think that that is the right motivation for evangelism. We go into our world, into the circles of influence the Lord has given me, given us. And in appropriate ways, I want to turn conversation toward the best news ever, just like I would toward being accepted into a school that I wanted to get into or something like it's going to come up, you know, and I think instead of what sometimes motivates evangelism, which is guilt or obligation or something like that, instead, I want my motivation to be just joy and the liberty I have. And will people be offended or annoyed annoyed or put off by it? Yes. But sometimes they are with other good news too. That doesn't stop me from sharing it. I mm-hmm. might learn from that. Oh, maybe I could be a little softer and that. I kind of stepped on their toes a little bit there, but that would never dissuade me from sharing the best news ever. So I, I, to me, that's what I was kind of trying to get at was this idea that that is the ultimate fuel for evangelism is just staring incessantly at the, the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the new covenant and the freedom we have in Christ and letting it just pour out of us. Yeah, I think maybe a, like a question is not only am I excited about my salvation, but would the other people in my world 
say that I'm excited about myself. Like sometimes yeah, that can be a good litmus test, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the people that I interact with, especially the ones that, you know, outside of the church, the people that see me in, you know, I, I can't say the workplace because my workplace is the church, but the people in uh, my other social circles, would they point to that excitement? Would they be able to say that I'm, you know, I love what I do, that I'm, I'm passionate about what I believe in, um, however they might phrase it, yeah. you know, outside of the church. Yeah. I think that's maybe a, an interesting thought experiment, if yeah. nothing else. And I'm not saying that this erases all fear of evangelism or of erases the awkwardness or erases any of those things. Those are real, you know, but at the same time, I think that if we understand the extent of the good news that we have, mm-hmm. it can eclipse some of those obstacles. I'm just thinking even in what you're saying, you're, to use the same analogy of, of other good news, it's it's not so different, I think, maybe at times than, you know, someone gets engaged, they have to think about how they tell that to someone who's maybe a close friend who they know is struggling in their singleness. Exactly. Or, you know, exactly. having a baby, you know, pregnant after knowing a close friend or a relative has lost a child, mm-hmm. perhaps. How do you, you know, you still, ha- it doesn't change the value of that good news, but you recognize that with certain people, you do have to be, at least just aware sensitive. of how it's yeah, yeah. sensitive to how you're sharing it, but it doesn't change the value of the news in itself. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's really yeah, interesting that's a, idea. a good analogy. Well, Josiah, six weeks on covenants is complete. And I really just want to give you the floor back one more time and just ask the question as we finish up this series, as you've kind of laid it all out, as you've been exploring this kind of overarching big picture of Christ's redemptive plan, is there anything that, needs to be said is there anything that you wish our listeners would understand coming out of this covenant series that maybe you've said already maybe you feel like you've missed maybe things that just need to be repeated again what do you want our church members to know and understand and be inspired by coming out of this series i'm going to sound like a broken record but god has spoken he's good at it and he means what he says take him at his word and read the bible from front to back as it has been progressively revealed. This is not rocket science. Like I don't think what we've done over the last six weeks has been earth-shattering, difficult stuff. It's just a matter of spending the time, reading it closely, understanding God is good at communicating. He, communi- he created communication after all, and just believing him, whether we can put all the pieces together or not. So that's where I would leave it. That is kind of Bible interpretation 101 that we want to teach here at this church we want to model here at this church we want to encourage one another in that to just take him at his word he means what he says and leave it there well i mean ultimately you could argue that's kind of what we've been trying to do for the past almost three years now with this podcast is encourage people to do just that Mm -hmm. to read god's word to take it as it is written to seek to understand it and i am thankful as always again that we have the time to do this, to discuss God's word um, in a different medium. And and listener, I hope this has been a valuable series for you and a valuable um, follow-up discussion every week. And uh, excited to see where God is going to lead us next as we, again, approach that three-year mark and approach, you know, new sermon series, new directions, new books of the Bible. Um, We are always excited to take this time to discuss God's word for his people. So until next time, go and be blessed and go with grace and peace. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.